Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. With me today is former abortion clinic worker Kelly Lester to give us not only her testimony, but to talk to us about really the abortion industry as a whole. I want to welcome you, Kelly, to the Good Fight Radio Show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know what? I'm excited because as I had told you in pre-production that Tony Palacio, the show's producer, he was so excited after talking with you and hearing your testimony, hearing your, your heart, hearing the cry for the gospel that you have and the cry for innocent babies' lives. And we at Good Fight Ministries, we consider that a, a marquee stone here when it comes to what we believe and where we are as a ministry in wanting to save babies as much as we can. And so we love to see the hands and feet of the body of Christ. And before I even get into you being an ex-abortion worker and so forth, what we would love to talk about is just how you came to Christ. I'd love to hear your testimony. And and please, you have plenty of time. Take your time and, and share how you came to know the Lord Jesus. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, it's quite a story. Um, you know, it's honestly a story that even when I tell it myself, it's hard for me to believe that it was actually real. Um, but I, you know, my first memories were as a kindergartner, a very young child, um, doing inappropriate things with dolls and and feeling shame in that. Now, mind you, I was raised in the church. My dad was a lay pastor and we were at the church anytime the doors opened, had small groups in our house, um, but began feeling this this overwhelming feeling of shame as a young child. And then that went into my elementary school years where I was teased and bullied and made fun of. And again, there was more shame. Um, and then when I was 12 years old, I was looking for just looking for friends. And so I snuck out and went to a party and was raped um, by one of the more popular boys in the school. And when I told my friends that that had happened, they didn't believe me and said, you know, why would he do that to you? Um, and when I told my youth pastor at church, unfortunately, her response was, you know, if you'd never gone to that party, that would have never happened. And so again, there was more shame and more guilt and I was just looking for love and acceptance. And so I became more promiscuous. And at 15, I found myself pregnant and uh, went and told my boyfriend's mom. And she drove me to our local abortion clinic, handed me a wad of money and said, I'll be back to pick you up in a couple of hours. And I will tell you without a shadow of a doubt, that day changed my life. I walked into the clinic, a straight A student. Um, I was a nationally ranked tennis player. Um, I, again, was at church every time the doors opened. Um, but when I walked out of the clinic, I stopped caring about my life and um, knew that God couldn't possibly love me. Um, and so I went on a path, a very rapid path of destruction. 
graduated high school shortly after I was a very young graduate at 17, went to college, started growing and selling drugs. Um, and shortly after found myself running drugs up and down the East coast for the Puerto Rican mafia. Um, we did, um, rave tours and grateful dead tour and sold drugs. Um, and with that lifestyle came pretty much every kind of depravity you could imagine. Um, and lived that way for many years. Um, and then, and during that period was when I worked in the abortion clinic, which we'll get to a little bit later. Um, but eventually after years of running and years of trying to find um, what, what fulfilled me, I was living in New Orleans and was dating a guy. We had a very violent relationship and had decided that I was going to come home. We went out for one last time to, to party together before I came home and it ended up in a fight as it usually did. And there was a moment in the fight where he was leaning over top of me with a board in his hand and he was about to hit me over the head with the board. And mid swing, he drops the board. He punches me in the face, blacks my eyes. You know, my nose is bloody. There's blood going everywhere. Looks down and realizes, oh my goodness, I've really actually hurt her. So the fight stops. Well, the next morning I wake up and I have text messages and phone calls from my father who was living in Virginia. We were in New Orleans. And I, of course, didn't answer them because, you know, I just gotten into a fight. I was hungover. Um, and your dad's the last person you want to talk to in that moment. So the following day, we packed up all of my belongings. I drove back to Virginia and my dad met me um, to to get all of my stuff. And as he gets out of the vehicle, he sees me. Now, mind you, I've got two black eyes. My nose is crooked. And he looks at me, starts crying. And, and I tell him, oh, dad, you know, I was in a car accident. All the things that women in those situations say. And we get in the car and he looks at me and he says, Kelly, two nights ago, I was asleep and I was awoken in the middle of the night by the Lord. And I had a vision of you laying dead on the floor with your head split wide open. And so I began to pray. And I knew that the moment when my boyfriend dropped that board was the moment when my father had began to pray. And so it took a few weeks um, of me, you know, sobering up and, and healing. Um, but I was sitting in my dad's pew of his church in the front pew, and it came to the time for altar call. And I heard as clearly as, as I've ever heard anything in my life, I heard the voice of the Lord. And he said, have you had enough? Now, it's interesting that phrase was a phrase that I'd heard many times before, probably had even heard several weeks before in the fight. And it was always a mean, you know, a mean guy saying, have you had enough? But this wasn't that voice. This was the voice of my father, God, calling his daughter home and saying, have you had enough? And I, you know, simply gave him the list of all the reasons that he couldn't love me and all the things that I'd done um, and all the, the reasons that I disappointed and ways I disappointed him. And then I heard him say, if you follow me, I will make beauty from ashes. And that is what he's done. He has step-by-step every part of the way. It's been almost 15 years now. He has redeemed my story. I'm now a mom with six kids, married to an amazing man. Um, I'm in the pro-life you know, movement. I travel and I speak and I tell my story. And, and I always thought, you know, God, how are you going to make beautiful me being molested at three years old, which is why I was doing those inappropriate things with dolls. How are you going to make beautiful me being raped? How are you going to make beautiful the abortions and the eating disorders and the abusive relationships and the drugs? How do you make that beautiful? 
And the way he makes it beautiful is when I tell my story, someone says, I've never told anybody this, but. And people that hear my story know that if he could save me, he can save anybody. And not only can he save you, but he can redeem you. I love it now when people will tell me, they'll be like, I can't believe that's your story. I would never guess that was you. And I'm like, that's how good God is. He's so good that when you see me, you can't imagine that that was my past um, because he loves to redeem. So that's my story. <laughs> well, wow. I mean, what a, a wonderful story, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's so interesting because I've used that, you know, even, you know, with my wife, you counsel people through relationships and different things. And one of the things we always like to start with is, you know, tell us how you originally fell in love, you know, uh, in terms of with your spouse. And then, you know, you know, looking also back, you know, we remember in the church, in the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus, they forgot their first love. And it's so cool to hear someone's testimony. And that is usually when I meet someone, tell me how you came to love and know the Lord Jesus. And to see his hand, like you said, your, your father praying, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful story. And I know now exactly why Tony wanted you to be on this show to talk about this, because that is beautiful. And, and, you know, specifically as the scriptures say, she who has been forgiven much loves much. And to see what the Lord has done in you, what an absolute positive blessing. So let's do a little bit of backtracking, not all the way to the back, but at some point in there, you began working at an abortion clinic. And you know what? I'd love to go into how that came about and, and really, you know, how did you start working at abortion clinic and what was it like? Sure. So, you know, during that season where I was telling you I was running drugs and I was doing all of those things, it was a life of chaos. And on many hands, it was glamorized and it was the rock and roll lifestyle, but there was a lot of um, pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of just trauma throughout that whole time. And I had decided that I didn't want to do that anymore, that I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to get a good job. I wanted to do a normal job. I wanted to do something to help people because I was always a helper. Even in those times of doing the drug deals, I was kind of the mom, you know, and took care of people. And so I wanted to find something where I could help people. And I looked in my local news paper, because this was 20 years ago, um, and saw that a women's clinic was hiring. And I thought, well, a women's clinic, that sounds like helping people. And so I called and it was the place where I'd had my very first abortion. Um, And, you know, a lot of people say, how could you go back there and work there? But you have to understand, I was in such pain from my abortions and in pain from um, what had led me to that, that I was looking to justify what I was doing. And, and in many ways, I believed the lie that the abortion had helped me because I wasn't pregnant. And, and not necessarily that it had helped me, but that it had prevented bringing a baby into the chaos that I lived in. Um, you know, it prevented furthering the trauma that I was by bringing a baby into that situation, because that's what, you know, that's what the world tells you. Um, and so I got hired there as the receptionist. Now, again, my, remember, this was 20 years ago, and they were paying me $18 an hour. Which is something that people don't know about the abortion industry is that they overpay underqualified people so that they can keep you trapped 
in the industry and doing things that you morally probably would not do. Um, and that was where I was $18 an hour. There was nothing that was paying that amount of money. And I thought being a receptionist, surely, you know, that's, I'm helping these women in this hard time of theirs. I'm helping women in this crisis time, like they helped me. And so this seemed like a good idea. Um, but it didn't take very long for me to realize that that's not what we were actually doing. Wow. And you know, just, just looking at some of your testimony, I've seen you you share online as well. I'd love for people to hear some of the tactics, because you've already pointed out specifically that they would go to underqualified people and pay them $18 an hour, and you say 20 years ago, is that right? Yeah, as a receptionist. That's, yeah. that's not a, a minimal amount of money at the time for a receptionist job, right? No, so obviously not. that's the tactic. So mm -hmm. obviously the abortion industry they use different tactics. And I'd love for you to maybe explain to our audience some of the tactics they use to maybe convince some of the women to get abortions. Sure. So again, as the receptionist, I had, I had several roles. One of my roles or one of my areas that I was in charge of was the reception room, obviously as a receptionist. And when women would come in, they would have magazines that were on the tables. We had a video, a TV playing, um, for them to watch. And the video, the magazines, we would edit the magazine. So anything that had a picture of a baby, that had a picture of a mom, even a picture of like a happy couple that might stir in this woman that she wanted to keep the baby, we would cut the picture out. The TV was playing on a loop where it looked like you were watching live TV, but you were actually watching a looped program because again, we didn't want a diaper commercial to come on or some kind of commercial that might trigger her to think that she wanted to keep this baby. And that was phrased to me when I got the job of, look, you know how hard this decision is. And so we're trying to make it easier for her. And my thought was, yes, absolutely. This is a hard decision. I do want to make it easier for her. But it became, again, it became more obvious that this wasn't trying to make it easy. This was manipulation. And um, I didn't want anything to do with that. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. And, yeah. you know, I've heard you say that there are some things they even did to some of the, the men, some of the situations they put the, the men in that came with their girlfriend or, or spouse. And, and yeah. what were some of those? Yeah. So the first thing was if a man called, we would be rude to him on the phone. We wouldn't give him any answers. We wouldn't tell him anything. Um, and, you know, we'd just be rude, plain ordinary rude. In the state of Virginia at that time, there was a 24 hour waiting period. So you would come first for your initial appointment, which was a consultation. And then you would return 24 hours later for your actual abortion. So oftentimes the guys would come with their girlfriends, spouses, whomever, and the girl would go back for her consultation appointment. Well, when he was waiting in the waiting room, we would turn the air conditioning on freezing or we would turn the heat on super hot so that he would get up and leave. Because when she came out from her appointment, we did not want him waiting there for her because that might let her know, hey, he does support you. We wanted her to feel alone and to feel isolated and to feel like he didn't support her so that she would choose this abortion. And we know that's the enemy's tactic. If he can get us alone and isolated, then that's where he attacks us the most. And we were just using the enemy's tactics for our benefit. Wow. I mean, that's just incredible to, to hear mm -hmm. that, like really what goes on behind the scenes in convincing that young lady, not to mention in popular culture and in media and in so many different arenas 
that women are programmed, I mean, these days to think that that is not a baby inside of you and you won't have any support, there's no help. And to think that there was really like decisions made cognitively to make sure that they were able to fulfill that abortion. I mean, that is just incredible. So you saw all this, you saw everything that was going on. What was it that brought you out of that? So the recovery room, I told you I had two areas that I was in charge of. One was reception, the other was recovery room. Now again, remember, I was hired as a receptionist. I had zero medical training. I had no medical background, but I was the one who oversaw the recovery room. And in the recovery room, most of the women had taken a very heavy sedation. We called it a twilight sedation. Um, and we formatted our pricing so that to get sedation, um, a sedated procedure was like $25 more than to do unsedated. And so everybody would choose sedation. Um, and in that sedation, you do not have a memory of the event that has happened. Most people don't even remember the day. You certainly don't remember what happened during and very little memory of what happens afterwards, which was also a very tactical thing. But in the recovery room, these women are coming out of this sedation. Now you are supposed to take their blood pressure four times. You're supposed to check temperature. There's all these things that you're supposed to do. I was the one overseeing that with zero medical training. And I would hand them their bag with their clothes. I would give them some crackers and I would give them some juice so that they could go on out the door. But what finally made me, troubled me the most was the number of women that were hemorrhaging sitting in those chairs. And when those women were hemorrhaging, we would not do what a good doctor would do, which is take them back repair whatever had been broken and then counsel them as to what had happened during that procedure so that they could get follow-up care so that they could go see their OBGYN and make sure that, you know, if the perforated uterus was, was repairing the way that it was supposed to be or whatever, we didn't do any of those things. They were on a sedation that was so heavy that they would not remember being in the recovery room. They would not remember that we repaired them and we would send them on their way without ever telling them that they had had a complication during their procedure. And the realization of what that, what was going on with that is what eventually was the final thing that made me leave. Because I knew not only I could see the manipulation that was happening in the beginning, you know, getting them to choose this procedure, but knowing that we were not being honest with them and that we were not telling them what had happened to their body, you know, their body, their choice. We had not told them what had happened to their body. I knew that this was not healthcare that I wanted to have anything to do with and that this was definitely not helping women. And so I, I quit. Well, I mean, j just, just incredible to think like mm -hmm. you're sitting there as a receptionist right. performing duties of either a nurse or doctor. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's incredible. And this is stuff that is going happening to young girls all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, that is, that is heartbreaking. And, you know, I know you work alongside uh, Abby Johnson, and for those who haven't, I do encourage you to check out the movie Unplanned. And, you know, I can tell you this from watching, and I watched it alongside my wife. We've had four children. And to see what goes all into that and the chaos and everything that was going on in that movie, and maybe, you know, if you haven't seen, we'll put a link in the description of this episode. But would you say that in that movie, a lot of the scenes that are shown – and some of the, you know, like the chaotic scenes and some of the blood and everything, 
Would you say that that is indicative of what you actually saw as well? 100%. I tell people all the time, because they'll ask me, you know, was that, is that what it's really like? And I tell you, the, the nurses in the movie Unplanned were a little bit prettier and wore a little bit more makeup than the nurses that I worked with. The facility itself was bigger and nicer than the facility that I worked out. Outside of that, it is 100% accurate. It is 100% what happens, how things go, and what transpires. And you did say I work with Abby, and then there were none is one of our ministries. And we have nearly 600 workers who've left the industry. And I can tell you that across the board, whether it be a major city, whether it be a small town, whether it be a Planned Parenthood, or whether it be a private facility like the one that I worked in, the stories are the same across the board in the abortion industry. It is not an isolated, my experience was not isolated. Abby's experience was not isolated. We have over nearly 600 workers that would tell you that's what it's really like. I, I was paid to do this job and ended up doing this job. I was paid to do this and ended up administering um, uh, narcotics when I am not, uh, I'm not qualified at that. Even Abby in the movie, she was holding the ultrasound for the procedure. She's not an ultrasound tech. She doesn't have that knowledge. So little things like that, prescribing drugs that you should not be prescribing. And I mean, it is across the board in the industry prevalent throughout. And there's another one of our ministries is called Check My Clinic. So you can go to checkmyclinic.org and you can look up the health report of abortion clinics in your area. And you will be absolutely floored with what is going on in these clinics. Um, now, a little caveat to that is that there are many clinics that have um, infractions that are not listed there. And that is because the health department is not mandated to regulate them. And if they do regulate it, they are not mandated to report it, which there's no other industry, health industry in the, your, your ear piercer, your massage therapist is more heavily regulated than the abortion industry. So if you see a clinic and there's nothing on there, that doesn't mean they're spotless. It just means it probably hasn't been reported. Um, but yeah, that's part of why we do what we do is because we want people to be aware of this, this widespread um, systemic healthcare <laughs> crisis that we have going on with these abortion clinics. Wow. And you say you have over 600 different work, former now, now former workers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there, I don't know if there's a thread there that you've noticed that was specifically kind of like you had that, mm -hmm. okay, I'm done with this. Do you know what that was for a lot of them? And um, it was basically St. My story sometimes worse. You know, there's for many of them, there's that one time, you know, it's the baby that at 24 weeks that they, you know, aborted that struck them. It's the twins. It's the triplets. It's the 16 year old girl who's come in now for her sixth abortion, where they know that this girl is being trafficked or know that this girl is being abused and nobody is reporting it. Um, you know, it's those situations that after a while you just get sick of. And, you know, they're, I tell people too, they're like, I don't understand how anybody could do it. And, and I get that. I, I myself now can, can understand that. But there are these blinders that are put on you. And most men and women who are in the abortion industry have they themselves suffer some kind of trauma.
And so they've got a wounding that they're trying to fill and they have blinders on. And there's a moment where the Lord removes those blinders. And it may be, again, like I said, a specific instance, or it may be a cumulative thing, a cumulative turn of events where they just realize this is too much and I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, but overwhelmingly, they have marriage issues. Overwhelmingly, they have um, substance abuse issues, overwhelming thoughts of suicide and depression. And when they find that there's a way out, many of them take take it. And that's what we do it. And then there were none. Uh, I think that's awesome. And, you know, obviously we're going to have all the resources there. And one of the cool things is as we're doing this interview, I'm sure the noise we're hearing are your own children, right? <laughs> I think that, I think that is awesome. All right. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, I have, I have four as well. And sometimes when we do interviews, they are down in the youth room, right down from us making all sorts of noise. But I, I, you know, I heard you talk about, you know, when you, when you had a child of your own as well, and in a separate interview, uh, and specifically, you know, one of the things that probably made you pro-life, is that right? It definitely led to it. I mean, the initial thing that, that made me start thinking that I was pro-life was realizing that Jesus loved me, you know, and that I was made in his image and that my life was valuable and no matter the things that I had done that I had value. And so that started me thinking, you know, all life is valuable. Um, but then when I got pregnant with my son and I saw the ultrasound and realized that I had aborted a child at that stage, you know, and, and saw him doing the little, you know, the little like tumbles down and in my belly, you know, and I thought, oh my goodness, that was the age of a child that I aborted, you know, when, and then when he was born, seeing him, and you can't deny that that's a life inside of you when you feel him moving around and when you see his ultrasound pictures and he gets out and he's sucking his thumb and you're like, that's what he was doing in the ultrasound. You know, there's no way to deny that. Um, and so that was definitely a big part of it was um, having children of my own. But it, it started before that. It started when the Lord... I began to see God as my father, my loving father, um, and not this mean, you know, vengeful man um, is, is kind of the process that started for me. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at PO Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.